Oh, wow. We are in 1 Kings chapter 8, and it's a long chapter, but we're not going to get through it all. Let's not waste any time. Let's get started. Welcome in to 7.30 on Wednesday nights, the Deep Dive Bible Study. My name is Tim. I am your host for this content, The Kings of Compromise, Part 9, going verse by verse through the books of First and Second Kings, and we are in First Kings chapter 8. Last week on the Deep Dive, I don't know if you remember, but we had a casualty, a technological casualty. That's really the only kind of casualty you'd like in life, I guess. Uh, our Bible cam stopped working, couldn't get it to work even after we recorded the episode. And then I polled you guys, the audience online to see if you liked this Bible better, which is the Logos Bible cam. I use Logos Bible software, highly recommend it to you. Uh, but anyway, you all voted for this version of the Bible cam anyway. And so we're going to stick with it. So goodbye, old dusty Bible cam. We are now with the new technological Logos Bible cam, and it doesn't matter. It's the biblical text, and no matter how we see it, as long as we see it and read it and do it and live it, it blesses our lives. Now, we also discovered new ways to interact with the text on the screen. Check this out. This is exciting. I can actually underline things in the text right here on the screen. I can also do this. I can select text, and I can highlight it live right as we study the text. If I don't like the highlight, I can clear it just like that with the touch of a button. Really exciting stuff here. Always improving here on the Deep Dive Bible Study. So I hope you're ready to just be blown away by all the technological advancements we're making here. <laughs> Make sure that you are hitting that subscribe button down below the notification bell as well. And give the video a like. Helps with the YouTube algorithm. Gets the message out. Come on. Like the video. Get the message out. Let's get started with the Kings of Compromise after we pray. Father, speak to us. We approach your word with humility and receptivity and ask that you might speak into our hearts things that will take root in our souls into who we are and change how we live to glorify your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, 1 Kings chapter 8. Let me give you the outline of the chapter because it is a long one. Uh, verses 1 to 13, the ark is brought into the temple. Huge picture for us as believers because we are the new temple and the ark is the symbol of Jesus. The presence of God comes into our bodies. The Holy Spirit indwells us. Verses 14 to 21, Solomon praises God for all of his faithfulness covenantally to the people of Israel. We will discuss why that's important to us today. We're only going to get through uh, point three in this outline, which is 22 to 53, those verses, where Solomon offers seven different kinds of petitions to the Lord because they are pictures of the prayers that we should be praying as New Testament saints. And then we will get to uh, verses 54 to 61, where Solomon exhorts obedience to God. That should say exhorts. It says exports. I'm sorry, but it should say exhorts obedience to God. And then 62 to 66, those verses just detail the sacrifices that were offered for the dedication of the temple. And that is the outline in short order. And we are going to deal with the first part of the chapter, which is when the ark comes into the temple, verses 1 to 13. So with all that in mind, let's get through the text. All right, Solomon assembles 
the elders. You've heard of Avengers Assemble. Well, this is Elders Assemble. And that is what verse one says. Then Solomon assembled all the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the father's houses of the people of Israel before King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. A couple of things we want to make sure that we pay attention to right off the bat is this is a very important moment. He assembles elders. He assembles the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the families, of the houses of Israel. Um, This is huge. It's coming from the city of David, which we will talk about where that is in relation to Zion. I'm sorry, in in relation to the Temple Mount, which is also referred to as Zion. I've been to both places uh, physically today. They are different, but they are right around the corner from each other. And so what you're going to see here and what we're already seeing is this is important. This is important. Solomon has finished the work to build the temple, but the temple itself has to have an operation, a function. It has to bring God's people to himself and and elicit worship. Now, look at the very next verse here in verse 2. It says, and the men of Israel assembled To King Solomon, note the words, and I can even change the colors. Check that out. In the feast, let me clear that. Uh, In the feast, in the month of Ethanim. So the the month of Ethanim, sorry, is also referred to as the seventh month. It is the seventh month in the Jewish calendar. And this is incredibly important. We are offered a picture, a picture of God's cosmic calendar. When the Old Testament refers to months, and days. It does so because it's pointing to a larger calendar in the cosmos, God's calendar. And these ancient pictures of Israel's year point to our reality and where we are in God's redemptive narrative cosmically, okay? So the seventh month is a big deal. First off, let's do something real quick. Let's back up to chapter six, And remind ourselves in verse 38, it says in the 11th year in the month of bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its parts. So Solomon finishes, he finishes the temple in the uh, eighth month of one year, but then he dedicates and fills the temple in the seventh month of the following year. Some people believe that what it meant was he dedicated it before he filled it, but that doesn't make any sense. Okay. Okay. It's very clear what happens here. He, de- he, he finishes the building and then he makes an 11th month process of preparing for this celebration. He involves all the important people, all the leaders, all the heads to come together to dedicate the temple to God. And so it's an 11th month process. We get to the seventh month and the seventh month is a hugely important picture for us. I want to spend some time on the deep end, uh, the deep dive, talking about the month of Ethanim. Israel's seventh month. First off, you need to know that is around our September slash October time of year. So we just got past Israel's seventh month on our calendar. If you're watching this in the future, I'm recording this uh, the last day of November. Uh, It is also the first day of the month where they would blow the trumpet and the trumpet referred to the judgment and memorial of Israel. God's judgment, okay, that will point also to the last judgment to come, but the judgment of God was always signified by the blowing of the trumpets. And on the first day of Ethanim, they would blow trumpets. Leviticus 23, 24, speak to the people of Israel saying in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest 
a memorial proclaimed with a blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. Now, you have to also understand that in the month of um, Ethanim, the Day of Atonement happens. The Day of Atonement is when the high priest would go in once a year and would offer the blood of a lamb uh, for the sins of the people. It was God saying, I have now removed the sin from amongst my people. And so this is a hugely important month. It's also, again, remember, the seventh month. Seven is an important number throughout all of scripture. It is always referring to completion or perfection or a finished work. So on the seventh day, God rested because he had finished his work, right? Every week is finished with seven days. And seven is God's number for completion. Again, we've talked about three plus four equals seven. Heaven is the number, three is the number for heaven. Four is the number for earth. Add them together, completion. That's what you have. Seven throughout all of scripture talks about that. So the day of atonement happens in this month. Next thing you need to know about this day or this month is that the Feast of Booths happens. Now, the Feast of Booths is also known as the Feast of Sukkot or the Feast of Tabernacles. It happens or starts on the 15th day of the month in the last seven days. It is referred to in Leviticus 23, uh, saying, The Lord spoke to Moses, speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the 15th day of the seventh month for seven days is the Feast of the Booths. Uh, to the Lord. Now, what does that all mean when it says booths or sukkot or tabernacle? Well, this was the time when Israel would commemorate every year that they dwelled temporarily in tents with God in the wilderness. So they would gather around in Jerusalem and they would set up these very makeshift four-sided rooms and they would dwell there for seven days in a celebration feast. It was, it's kind of like a nationwide camp out, if you will. If, if, if Woodstock was sanctified, right? Everybody just camping around God's presence, reminding themselves that his presence and, and not their possessions is really what makes them who they are. Now, this is also important to note. This was the last festival of the calendar year for Israel. The last part of all their annual festivals happened in the seventh month. Kind of interesting, right? Not in the 12th month, but in the seventh month. Very, very important point about that in just a moment. It was the end of the harvest. All the harvests were completed. So this was a time where food was plentiful. A lot of people could eat a lot of food, enjoy each other's company. Kind of like our time of year right now with when, when you think about the holiday season, Thanksgiving and Christmas, and then the first of the year, all kind of like a, a, a month long nationwide feast, if you will. That's what Israel had. Only they had it in the seventh month. There was also a time for seed planting. So they would not just eat the harvest, but they would start to prepare by planting seeds for the next season of harvest. And they would start to plant seeds for where they were going and not just worry about where they were. Now, there's another text in Deuteronomy chapter 31, which is important to this conversation because it talked about in verse uh, 10 and 11 of Deuteronomy 31, that they were, to com they were commanded to read the law at the time of the Feast of Booths when they appeared before the Lord their God. So they didn't just um, rejoice and eat and celebrate the food of God's blessing. They didn't just dwell temporarily and makeshift houses together as a commemoration of God's presence among them, but they read his law. They took time as a nation to pray and to read God's law and to remember that this is what he said to do. Whenever we come close to God, we come close to God on his terms, not ours. We come to God in the word, through the word, he draws us. His word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He was quoting Deuteronomy, of course, but, but nonetheless, the word of God brings us life, brings us joy, brings us together in community. And I've already mentioned that this is the seventh feast of the seven feasts in the nation of Israel's annual calendar. 
Now, I'm going to unpack for you why that matters. Because the seven feasts of the Lord are pictures, understand this, pictures of the prophetic events in God's cosmic calendar. You might be interested to know that there were four spring feasts, and these would happen in our springtime, um, in also technically Israel's springtime, but they were four spring feasts. Passover, where a sacrificed lamb was offered in each home. Unleavened bread, where they would hide the leaven and remove all the yeast from their homes because yeast and leaven was a symbol of sin. First fruits, which is where they would wave the first offering of their increase before the Lord. And Pentecost, 50 days later after Passover, where they would gather for their, uh, their great harvest, the beginning of their harvest, if you will. And this is really cool because all you, what you have here in the spring feasts is you have the historic feasts of our past on God's cosmic calendar. These feasts have already been fulfilled. Passover, Christ's is the final sacrifice and the, the spotless lamb for us. Unleavened bread, we are purified from our sins within. Every person in ancient Israel would purify their homes. Well, through Christ, you purify yourself through uh, confession of sin and repentance and and turning to the Lord and and seeking His cleansing and His Word, which cleanses us. Uh, first fruits has already happened. That's the resurrection of Christ, which points to our resurrection. And then Pentecost happened when the Holy Spirit fell in Acts chapter two upon the church. And what happens? They speak in other tongues, the tongues of nations that were spoken by many of the Jews who had scattered to those nations. They come back on the day of Pentecost for the Pentecostal feast. And there are the 120 speaking in tongues and all these languages, and it starts to inaugurate the ingathering of the nations. This is just a beautiful picture. You, you, you have to see the richness of Scripture. God mapped this out 2,800 years ago. And even further, if you go back to Leviticus, what was that, 3,500 years ago, to show us, this is my plan. This is my agenda. Here's what I'm about to do. Here's how it's going down. There's a first part, there's a second part. So the first part are the first four spring feasts. Then there is a four-month break in Israel's calendar. And every year they do this four-month break from the end of October right again till about March. So, you know, October, November, December, January, February, then March. And again, that's when Easter and Passover come around again, right? Well, that refers to our time right now. That refers to where we are cosmically in the calendar of God. We've, we've received Pentecost. We've received first fruits. We've received cleansing from sin. We've received those things historically. And then, and then in, in our own person, these things can happen as well, right? Well, that brings me now to a really exciting talk about the last three remaining feasts in Israel's calendar. They're called the fall feasts. And you think about it, the end of the year is fall and the end of the cosmic calendar is fall on God's universal calendar for humankind. Now, let's talk about this. There's the Feast of Trumpets. This is the feast where judgment will be enacted on the world. Again, blowing the trumpets. By the way, what do we see in Revelation? But the trumpet judgments of God on the peoples, right? Then you have the Day of Atonement. This is where Jesus returns. He literally comes back to this earth and eradicates sin. And just like the high priest did in Israel's day, he would make atonement for the people of Israel so that no sin would be found amongst them. Every year, that was pointing to God's ultimate day of atonement when Jesus returns and wipes out sin. Uh, it's very simple, very important that you understand, too, the, how God has dealt with sin in three stages, not only in human history, but in your life. When you become a Christian, God saves you from the penalty of sin. He did that at the cross. Jesus took the penalty for your sin on the cross. As a Christian, you are saved from the power of sin. That is the work of sanctification as the Holy Spirit takes up rulership and leadership in your life. So 
the penalty of sin, the power of sin is a process. In the future, there is a, the presence of sin will be removed. No more sin at all. So if you like sin, um, can I tell you that heaven will be miserable for you? <laughs> uh, life with God eternally will be miserable for you if you like sin. So those of you who hate sin, good news, and you still struggle with sin as we all do. And Paul even said, I hate what I do and the things I hate, I keep on doing and the things I want to do, I don't do. And he was talking about the fact that we live with this present reality, but not a, not a reality reality. It's a, it's a spiritual reality, but it's not a reality reality. And that is because we were waiting for the eradication of sin. And then finally, the last feast, which is the one, the one in which Solomon decides, I'm going to bring the temple, the ark into the temple and, and dedicate the temple here. He chooses the Feast of Booths intentionally. And I believe under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, because this feast is pointing to our home in heaven. And that is it, friends, right there on the screen. If you're watching on YouTube, that is the sevenfold um, cosmic calendar. Seven great moments. All the feasts point to it from the Old Testament. And you are right in the middle of the first four and the last three. And again, remember the first four happened on earth. The last three happened in heaven. So heaven plus four, heaven, three, earth, four, Adam together, we get seven. It's just really cool how the Bible continues to come together on every level. Now, I want to make a couple of interpretations for you about tabernacles before we go further in chapter eight of first Kings, because these are all very important biblical truths and you need to know this. First off, let's talk about the, um, the earthly interpretation of the Feast of Tabernacles. On earth, the Feast of Tabernacles is a call to live for a short time in a temporary tent with God as he provides all your needs or has, has provided all your needs. That's what Israel did in the wilderness wanderings. They were dwelling in tents with God. He was also in a tent walking with them through the wilderness into the promised land. So this is a picture. The tabernacle feast, the booths, Sukkot, is a, is a picture of what we have right now. This, this already present reality that we're in, in this tent. And if you think about your body, your body is a tent. Paul talks about this tent in first Corinthians and, and the resurrection and um, putting away this tent. And interestingly enough, remember Paul was a tent maker. That was his profession. So he understood tents back then. Uh, the tabernacle was a tent, your body's a tent, and you as a human live with Jesus on this earth in the tent that is your human body. But cosmically, the Feast of Tabernacles is a call to remember that our true home is a dwelling with God in heaven that's permanent. Now, now, this is important because the tabernacle in the wilderness was temporary. It was a makeshift tent that moved with the people of Israel. The temple Solomon builds is a permanent structure, obviously not totally permanent, but it's a picture of a permanent structure, stone and a foundation and you know gold covering everywhere and all of this intricate detail to make sure that this place, this didn't move, right? It's a picture of the cosmic reality that we are all headed toward. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 16 prophesies, then everyone who survives all of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. He's talking about the nations, the nations coming home to heaven. So this is a picture of the Gentile uh, evangelism that is happening since the day of Pentecost. John chapter 14, verse one and two, what does Jesus say to his disciples as he's about to fulfill the feast of Passover? Because this is the last supper, right? He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are what? 
are many rooms, tabernacles, tents, if you will. If it were not so, I would not have told you that. Uh, And then he says, uh, and then it is fulfilled ultimately in Revelation chapter 21, uh, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell. Another word could be uh, tabernacle. He will tabernacle with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So you have right here in the ancient feast of Israel, this tabernacle's feast, you have it prophesied in the Old Testament, you have it promised in Jesus in the Gospels, and then you have it fulfilled in Revelation as the final feast of God's cosmic, think bigger than just the year, cosmic calendar. It is all pointing to the fulfillment of the end of the age. And this is a long discussion to get us right back here into verse two is that he does this assembly um, of Israel in the month of Ethanim, the month in which they celebrated the feast that points to God dwelling permanently with his people in peace. Not just permanently in the future, but right now, presently, temporarily. Again, really cool in you, if you ask me, to see the story of God's plan um, baked into the cake, if you will, from these ancient texts, 2,800 years ago, right? You just, the Bible is inspired. That's, that's really what I'm trying to say. Uh, so let's continue on with our discussion. We're only two verses in and we're 22 minutes into the episode. Sorry, guys. Uh, so all the elders came And the priest took up the ark and they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting and all the holy vessels that were in the tent, the priests and the Levites brought them up and King Solomon, verse five, and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with them before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Now there's a couple things that I want to point out from this text. And that is number one, there is a sacrifice that is continuing uh, throughout the process of the ark coming. Uh, into the temple. So this word sacrificing is in the present perfect, which means that they kept sacrificing and sacrificing. It it gives this picture of when David brings the tabernacle, I'm sorry, the ark into the tabernacle in his day, that he had them take a step and then offer a sacrifice, a step and offer a sacrifice. I think we covered that in the life of David. Uh, I think it's in 2 Samuel chapter 6, if I remember off the top of my head. But anyway, it is a, a sacrifice at every step. And that's kind of the picture here that you have in 1 Kings chapter 8 is that the only way we do life with God is through sacrifice. And the point that I would like to make is that Christ is the final sacrifice that makes every step of our life with God possible. Christ is the final sacrifice that makes every step of our life possible. So as we step toward heaven, right? Jesus is coming, bringing us to heaven. He's going to bring us to heaven. We're going to go with Jesus into heaven. He will, he will descend and we will rise with him. And so we will ever go and be with the Lord. First Thessalonians chapter four talks about this. Well, what makes our, what makes our traversing earth here possible? And then our communication into heaven possible one final sacrifice. So this sacrificing just keeps happening because they are, it's a serious thing to come into the presence of the Lord. Then Notice also verse three, it says, what came with them? The tenth of meeting. Now, this is a very important point here because what what it is telling us is that not only did the instruments and the ark come on, come into the new finalized temple, but the old tabernacle, that temporary tent we just talked about also came into the temple with the ark. 
that tabernacle was a, also a picture of Christ. So you have Christ entering into the final tabernacle or temple with his people. This is pointing to the reality that in the temple to come in heaven, Christ enters with us. And it all happens through his precious sacrifice for us. This is so cool how all of this stuff unpacks in the biblical text. Okay, we've got to continue or we'll never get done. Uh, verse 6. Then the priest brought the Ark of the Covenant to the, of the Lord to his place in the inner sanctuary of the house and the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the Ark so that the cherubim overshadowed the Ark and its poles. Now this is important because the poles are mentioned here. And look at how it's mentioned again. The poles that you, they used, the priest used to carry the Ark, it says in verse 9, they were so long, verse 8, sorry, they were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place. That would be the um, um, the the place the uh, holy of holies but they were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary but they could not be seen from the outside so if you were in the inner sanctuary these poles are so long you could see them in the holy place but you couldn't see them outside of the inner sanctuary why is that detail given to us well these poles were used again to carry the ark and they were left in the holy place in a way that was visible to those who would come into the inner sanctuary a very interesting thing that God does here. Those poles could be seen as you came to worship God and they would remind you that he moved with you. Those poles brought you and him together. Well, what does Christ's cross consist of but two poles, right? That, that's why the cross is an, an, an historic reminder of what God did to bring us to himself and bring us to be with him. These poles are pointing, I think anyway, to the cross. The cross carried Christ's sacrifice to God for us so that we could come to God through this long traversing journey with God on this earth. And it's just another beautiful picture of the age to come. Uh, there is more to be said. We will continue so that we can uh, wrap this conversation up about this um, Ark coming into the temple, verse 9, it says, There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister before, I'm um, sorry, because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So what you're seeing here is a very deliberate picture of um, God's presence is made manifest where uh the, the, the sacrifices have been made. The blood has washed away sin. Uh, people take it seriously. They come together and the Lord dwells amongst them. And in the ark, did you see it? Were the tabernacle, I'm sorry, were the tablets of testimony, the 10 commandment tablets that God gave to Moses. Remember the first tablets he crushed because the Israelites were uh, committing idolatry and he made them drink it with water. So then he makes new, the Lord gives him new uh, tab tablets and he puts those tablets in the ark and they're still in there to this day. The point is this, God's law on earth is God's law in heaven. We're seeing that the law of earth follows in heaven. Remember Jesus said, heaven and earth shall not pass away. I mean, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall never pass away. The law never passes away. So that means, and again, I, I think I've already said this, but if you enjoy breaking God's law here, you will hate heaven because there's no break. There's no, there's no potential to break God's law in heaven. Okay. If you 
break God's law, but hate that you break God's law, then heaven is for you because heaven is the place where the law cannot be broken. The presence of sin is eliminated uh, once and for all, finally, at the great cosmic day of atonement. Okay, that's what we have here, the glory of the Lord filling the house, and the, the priests are trying to minister, but they could not minister. And by the way, that's another picture of heaven because the priests will not have to minister in heaven. Uh, heaven will be perfect. There will be no need for ministering priests. Okay, that's part one of this conversation. Let's go to part two of this chapter, which is verses 14 to 30, where Solomon worships God. And what a picture, by the way, of a nation's leader worshiping God. And that's what we have here in verse is 12, right through uh, 30. It says, then, the, then Solomon said, the Lord has said he would dwell in thick darkness. I indeed have built for you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell forever. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel while the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David, my father, saying, since the day I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to put, build a house that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart, heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build a house. Now, we have talked about this again and again, and it keeps getting repeated, but it's just a reminder that David wanted to build a house. He could not build a house. No, the true son of David had to build a house. So it says this, Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made, for I have risen in the place of David, my father, and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and I have built a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, and there I have provided a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Okay, a couple of things we're going to talk about here when it comes to the name of the Lord in the house of Israel. And this is really kind of amazing. Um, Solomon is worshiping God for the fact that he has fulfilled his promises. What God has said, he has done. And this is true and proper worship. True and proper worship does not simply ask for things in our present or in our future. Worship responds to God's acts in our past. Can I tell you, one of the greatest things that you can do is keep a record of God's faithfulness to you. Write it down. Have a notebook, have a journal, something where you are writing down God's faithfulness throughout the purposes, the, 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 the plans of your life, the, the purposes of God in your life. Now, now, in this short prayer, Solomon unpacks a few realities um, that we are all going to deal with. L like in verse 17 here, uh, the Lord said he would dwell in darkness. I have, I have built this house for you. Um, and then he says later on, uh, he has fulfilled the promise with his mouth to David, my father. This is incredible because David was promised this house, but he didn't see it. So there is a great need in our hearts to remember that all of our life with God is a life of faith. And sometimes we're not going to see the answers to our prayers, but David would see from heaven, if you ask me, the fulfillment of these promises, but sometimes we're going to see them in our own life. And so we have to remember this intergenerational reality of our lives with God. We have to remember that it's not all about us as well. We have to also understand that there are delays to the answers of our prayers. David desperately wanted to build a house, but he did not get that opportunity. You might want to desperately do whatever it is you want to do, but you might not get the opportunity. Your kids might, or somebody that you influence might. And that's okay. We are part of a long let me use a modern term right now, a long supply chain of God's purposes coming to earth, 
You're just part of that chain. You're not the whole chain, right? So you have to see, even in this prayer of worship and blessing the Lord, Solomon once again worships God because he understands where he is in the narrative of God. I'm, I'm a part of this, and it's a privilege to be a part of this. And even what I, even what I am doing, really, is only what the Lord told someone else that I would be doing. I didn't make this up myself. Beautiful picture of worship, if you ask me, because worship so often in the modern American church is centered on ourselves, centered on you know, our plans, our dreams, our desires. And worship cannot be about us. If worship is about us, we are not worshiping. We are self-loving. Worship is about him, what he has done in the past, what he is doing now, how he is working in humanity, and we worship God for who he is and what he is doing, not for how we feel, what we're going through, or what we saw happen, or how we experience his presence. Look, I was raised in a charismatic church, Pentecostal really, but charismatic Pentecostal, basically second cousins to each other. Um, it was all about feelings. Worship was all about the song, the mood of the song, the sound of the you know, piano or keyboard or the sound of the music, the, the feeling that you get from that song. A lot of people make worship about themselves because they want certain songs played because those certain songs remind them of their younger days in Christ or just make them think about certain times in their life where they were first saved and they felt better about themselves. That's not worship. Now, there's nothing wrong with it, but it's just letting you know it's not, it's not worship if it's just about something that happened in your life only and it makes you feel a certain way. Worship is never about feelings. It's about faithfulness to God. It's about his faithfulness toward us. And that's exactly what Solomon enunciates here in his, um, in his uh, blessing of the Lord in these verses. Now let's continue uh, through the text here. Verse 22, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. So again, worship focused on what God does and how he stays faithful. Then he says, you have kept with your servant, David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now notice who built the house. Solomon built the house with the workers and the laborers, but he tells God, I know that this is actually your doing. What I have been able to do has been accomplished because it is actually your doing. This is a very important prayer, very important way to pray and, and, and seek God. Uh, let's see, verse 25. Yes, let's continue here. It says this, Therefore, now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons <clears throat> pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant, David, my father. Solomon is praying now beyond himself. And good prayers do this all the time. Good prayers, again, are not centered on you. They are centered on what God is working through you. And so Solomon's like, I am hoping and praying that my sons pay close attention to your word as well. Here's what every parent needs to do on a regular basis. You need to pray over your kids' lives from the day they are conceived, not born, conceived. 
because we believe life can, begins at conception. Well, prayers should begin at conception. Hashtag that. Prayers should, be con- <laughs> should begin for your kids when they are conceived. Praying that their lives worship and honor the Lord. Praying that God's purposes prevail in their lives. And then when they are growing up and they are teens and they are getting frustrated with life and things aren't working out how they want and their dreams are coming to or whatever it is that they're crying about. You say, listen, I don't know why you're going through this, but I do know that I prayed for you that your life would be close to God. And maybe God is using this to draw you close to him. I'm just saying that Solomon, just he exemplifies proper prayer in the heart of God's people. And we do well to take note of it and replicate it in our own families, in our own lives. Okay, verse 27 to 30, we're going to get to something really cool here. It says this, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? And that is an important question. No, he doesn't dwell on the earth. Honestly, he dwells in heaven. He's beyond heaven. He's beyond earth. And that's exactly what Solomon says here. Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard for the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, look at verse 29, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. Interesting little text right there. He calls it the place that you have said, what? My name shall be there. Let me just read through verse 30 and then we'll get to something really cool. And listen to the plea of your servant, And of your people Israel, when they pray toward this place and listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, what's the word? Forgive. In other words, true prayer comes with a confessional heart, a contrite heart, a convicted heart. True prayer. You never approach God in your pride with self-righteousness. You approach God with a need for forgiveness. Now, that's the practical pastoral application of that text. But let me get to something here about what what Solomon says when he calls this place, the place of which you have said, God really did it. Uh, God said it in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 11. And we're going to get to that in just a moment, that he will select a place where he will put his name. He will select a place where he will put his name and he will dwell there. What's the name of God? Well, in Exodus chapter six, God tells Moses, I am the Lord almighty. I am God Almighty. That's my name. We know also Yahweh, the Lord, but El Shaddai is the name of the Lord that God made known to Abram, Abraham in Exodus chapter 6. That's what God says to Moses. Now, the word Shaddai means Almighty, and it begins with the word, the letter, the Hebrew letter, Shin. And if you go to Israel today, as I have been, you will see that there is a certain topography to the um, land on which is the Temple Mount, the city of David, and the valleys around those areas. It's really interesting. And I remember somebody showing it to me when I was there, and I was like, whoa, that's crazy. But in the topography of the valleys and the mountains and the, if you will, the hills, the holy hills, you actually see the Hebrew letter Shin. Now, I want to show you this on the screen because it's important that you understand what I'm talking about. So you have um, three valleys in the land of uh, Jerusalem. Uh, Number four here signifies the Kidron Valley. Uh, By the way, the Mount of Olives is over here on that. 
eastern side, if you will, of the valley. Uh, number five represents the uh, Tyropoean Valley, and it runs right through the middle of the city. Uh, right here is the temple now where Herod's temple was and the remains of which are. Uh, then the city of David is on the western side, if you will, of that uh, valley, the Tyropeon Valley. And then number six here up on the screen represents the Hinnom Valley, and that runs all the way around the western boundary, southwestern boundary of the city of Jerusalem. Now notice how those valleys make a shape. And that shape is the Hebrew letter Shin. And Shin is what the Hebrews or the Jews referred to as the letter that represents Shaddai, the name God Almighty, El Shaddai. Remember, by the way, in Hebrew, you read right to left. So this is El on the screen here, and this is Shaddai, the last part of that word. Deuteronomy 12, 5, God says what? You shall seek the place that the Lord your God would choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. It's phenomenal to me that even the topography of the land of Jerusalem is teaching us this is where God dwells. And I believe that Jesus will return the Mount of Olives and all that kind of stuff is going to happen in the last day. And it's just a beautiful picture. <laughs> it's a beautiful picture. Man, even, the, even the, the ground of the earth shows us that the scriptures are true. Uh, I just get moved by this stuff. I hope you do too, but it's just beautiful. Anyway, verse 31. Now we're going to get to uh, the prayers of Solomon uh, for the people. And we are going to talk now for a few moments and close out this episode with seven petitions from Solomon, verses 31 to 53. Solomon offers seven prayers. And I got good news for anybody here who does not know what to pray for, because Solomon literally enunciates what we should pray for as God's people. Can I tell you that our prayers sometimes are so poor because they are, again, we've already talked about this, very me-centered, very, very individual-centered. But Solomon's petitions are really for the people. They're really for the whole movement, the whole body. And there are some prayers that he offers here, some, some instructions on prayers that he offers here as he talks to God that they might pray this way. And they are really a roadmap for how the church should pray for itself today. What should we pray for as the church? Now, I, I get it. Sometimes we have, you know, a cousin who's going under the knife and they are getting their appendix out and we want to pray for those needs. Yes, I get it. But that's really not kingdom prayer. That's personal prayer. There's a place for that and God will absolutely answer prayers like that. But there are kingdom prayers. There are Temple Mount prayers. There are big picture prayers that the church needs to participate in. And Solomon enunciates those in 1 Kings uh, 8, chapter 30, uh, verses 31 to 53. So first one, let's take a look at it here on the screen. I'm going to switch over here to this kind of thing. It says, if a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge for your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. Okay, so first off, what does Solomon ask for? He's asking for these sins between neighbors. And by the way, made to take an oath means that he's going to come to the temple. He's going to say, I, bet I will never do that again. Okay, well, if that happens, um, would you hear from heaven? Would you vindicate the righteous man? So this is a prayer for community, uh, unity in community. Uh, God, uh, keep us together. 
Because man is going to sin against man, woman against woman, man against woman, woman against man. I mean, this is a reality. There's no end to this. It will always happen. And Solomon says, here's what I want to see happen in this house. I want you to hear these prayers, Father, that when people are divided from each other as the body, that they come back together again, that you also judge your servants accordingly, according to heaven, that you condemn the guilty, you bring his conduct on his own head. You vindicate the righteous. In other words, there are some things, God, that we can't take care of because we don't have the whole picture, but you do. But I'm praying that there is unity, that there is a forgiveness, there is a there is a unity that happens in the body of God's people because sin is inevitable. We're going to hurt each other. We're going to break each other's hearts. We've got to learn how to move forward in those places. Unity is far more important than just our individual hurts. Okay, verse 33, the second petition. Look at this. When your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, and if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave their fathers. The second prayer is a prayer for restoration or repentance. He's saying, look, what if they're, de- what if they're defeated by their enemy? And they're defeated because they've sinned against you. And here's what he's saying. Sin brings a consequence on God's people. Even Hebrews chapter 12 talks about the punishment of the Lord, that he, he disciplines those that he loves. When you sin, you are disciplined by the Lord through the consequences of that sin. But hopefully that sin, uh, that consequence brings you back to God. So what should we be praying for as God's people? Unity amongst the body and repentance of sin in the body. We need to pray that the church will repent of its sin. Why do I emphasize that? Because so much of the church prays for the sins of the world, but we also need to pray against the sins of our own lives. What does Jesus say before you look at the speck in your brother's eye, take out the log in your own? In other words, a a kingdom-oriented prayer is God clean our house. Clean our house. Scripture says it is time for judgment to begin in the house of the Lord, right? So a kingdom-oriented prayer is prayer for the repentance of God's people. Verse 35, when heaven is shut up, this is the third prayer, when heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they've sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. Okay, this is a prayer for purity. This is a prayer for righteous living because look what he says in the second half of this section. You not only forgive the sins, but you teach them the good way in which they should walk. In other words, bring purity, not just repentance. Repentance is, I hate the sin. I want the sin out of my life. But purity is, I want righteousness imbibing my life, imbibing, imbibing, (laughs) indwelling in my life. I want to live righteously before you, Father. And, and, and this is also warned about in Deuteronomy 28 when God says, look, if you, re- if you rebel against me, you're not going to get the, the reins. You're not going to get the, the, the productivity that you need. This is Deuteronomy 28, 23. But if you repent and seek purity, and this is important, listen to this, you're going to get the reins. You're going to get the prosperity. Some of you have a prosperity problem because you have a purity problem. You're not prospering because your life is not pure. You need to put away ungodliness. You need to put away unrighteousness and filthiness. Some of you listening to me right now, you are fornicating. You are are committing sex acts outside of marriage. 
And um, just talking on that issue right now, because our country continues to redefine marriage and the Senate just voted to pass the redefinition of marriage. Ridiculous. The world is lost. We don't follow the ways of the world. And we can rail about same-sex marriage all we want, but there's a lot of cohabitating happening in the house of God. There's a lot of unrighteous sexual activity, pornography, um, lusts, um, adultery, unrepentant adultery, looking with lust. These things have to be taken seriously in the house of God. God cleanse us, set our hearts right to walk. What does he say? To walk in the way that you teach them. Very important prayer a prayer for purity. Let's go on. Verse 37, he says, if there is famine in the land, uh, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, in the, if their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness is there, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people, Israel, even knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hand toward this house, then here in heaven, your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know, according to all his ways for you, you only know the hearts of the children of mankind for they, uh, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. This is a prayer for holiness. Now you say, well, what's the difference between purity and holiness? Purity is to walk righteously, but holiness is to walk um, set apart, is to walk in a way that says, I am no longer of this world. He, he, this is what Solomon is praying for the people to pray for. Like when famine or pestilence or blight or mildew or enemies come in and besiege them and they're taken captive by these things, then they offer prayers and you hear in your dwelling place and you forgive and you render to each one whose heart you know. Again, these are very important lines. Whose heart you know. So this is inward holiness according to all his ways, right? You know the hearts of all the children of mankind that they may fear you. That's what you want to pray for in your life. A kingdom-oriented prayer is a prayer for holiness, purity, again, repentance, community. So far, we're only up into four prayers. Let's go into the fifth prayer, uh, verse 41. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. And when he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. This is an amazing moment, an amazing prayer. This is a prayer for the lost. This is a prayer for foreigners to come and cry out to God. And notice the words. This is so cool to me for a Jewish king to say this, that whenever he comes and prays toward this house, uh, please do all that they might want. Like basically what he says there, verse 43, here in heaven, your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you. Father, our Lord, Solomon says, answer the prayers of people who are not like us. This is a prayer for people far from God. It is a prayer for the lost. And it is also a reminder that this is the only prayer God hears from the lost, the cry for repentance, the cry to know God. Notice how he starts the prayer. Um, when he comes from a far country, for your name's sake. In other words, he has heard what you're doing for us and he wants part of it. That's what, that's what Israel is supposed to be, a representation of what life with God was like. And it is just, again, um, a kingdom-oriented prayer where we are praying for lost people to know the God that we serve. 
Okay, sixth prayer, verse 44. He says this, if your people go out to battle against their enemy by whatever way, you shall send them. And they pray to the Lord toward the city you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. This is a prayer for victory. This is a prayer, God give us victory over our enemies. And this is another kingdom prayer. Um, when Jesus, when Paul talks about prayer, what does he say? Uh, our enemies are not flesh and blood, right? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against the principalities, the powers, the spiritual forces in the heavenly, of wickedness in the heavenly realms, Ephesians chapter 6. And so we want to be praying kingdom prayers against our spiritual enemies, praying against the demonic strongholds over our cities, the demonic strongholds over people's lives. We, we want to pray for spiritual victory over our communities and for our church. And then the, the last prayer, kind of a long one, seventh prayer or petition that, that Solomon uh, kind of exemplifies here for us in verse 46, if they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy far off or near. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which you have been, uh, to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors saying, we have sinned and acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you, pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive that they may have compassion on them for they are your people and your heritage which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. Um, long prayer, but there's so much to it. Uh, he's talking about the fact that there needs to be a prayer for a returning, a prayer for a, um, uh, it's more than repentance. It's a prayer that they will be reunited together. If they disperse because of their sins, if they are driven into the hands of an enemy, well, and he says some things that actually come true in the life of David, in the life of Esther, and Daniel, sorry, Daniel, in the life of Esther, in the life of uh, Jeremiah, these, uh, and Ezekiel, these exilic and pre-exilic and exilic Israelites, that they were given favor, weren't they, in the land of their captivity. David was given favor in the eyes of Nebuchadnezzar, of Belshazzar, of Darius the, per, the Mede. He is always greeted with favor. This is the prayer of Solomon for the people of Israel. It is a prayer that God's people will do more than just return to God. Uh, they will have national revival. That's really what this prayer is about, national revival. This is a, another kingdom-oriented prayer. God, give us grace before the nation. Give us favor in this nation where we are captive right now. This is what we want to pray right now that we might bring your kingdom here on this earth, that we might be restored to prominence amongst this nation, that your people will be a light again and people will be drawn to it uh, through your, your grace and through your mercy and, and through the Holy Spirit. So those are seven petitions. Uh, summing up this passage, uh, verse 52, he says this, let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant and to the plea of your people Israel, giving ear to them whenever they call to you, for you separated them from among the peoples of the earth to be your heritage, as you declared through Moses, your servant, when you brought our fathers out of Egypt. O Lord, our God, lots of text. We have gone through 53 verses so far, and we're not even done with the chapter yet, and we're going to save the rest for the next time. So with that in mind, let's tap into truth. 
Okay, so what do we see so far in these 53 verses? Um, I just want to remind you of what we talked about last time. The house of God is where God puts his attention, and so should we. Again, so much ink. <laughs> We're, we are eight chapters, not even through eight chapters yet, of First Kings. And it has so far been all about two things. God establishing Solomon as the king and God establishing his house amongst the people through Solomon. And what we need is we need a king, a righteous king, chosen by God, son of David, and we need a house. We need to be the house of God. We need to know what our purpose is in life. God has his attention on the church. So much of our lives is distracted by everything else. We need to remember the church is God's house. It is his primary occupation. It is what he is building. Jesus did not say, I would come and build a nation. I'll come and build a building. I'll come and build a tower. I'll come and build, you know, this great reputation. No, 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 no. He said, I'll, I'll come and I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Next thing I want to just kind of point out from this text is this. We live in the now and not yet reality of the kingdom, the now and not yet. So like I had already kind of referred to is that the temple, it was a permanent uh, structure, but it wasn't a permanent structure because again, the Babylonians will come in and destroy this structure at the end of second Kings. So all that we see in this picture of the temple and in that seventh feast, the, the feast of booths is a prelude of coming attractions. So I say this because God's attention is on the house of God your attention should be on the house of God because the house of God is the only thing that's going to heaven. <laughs> the people of God are the only people that are going to heaven. I really get annoyed when people say, I don't like Christians. I love Jesus, but I don't like Christians. Well, if you don't like Christians, you are going to hate heaven because only Christians are going there. Now, can you not like what some Christians do? Yes, of course, because again, we still live with the presence of sin. But ultimately, only God's people are going to be with God in eternity. And there's no changing that. So you've got to learn or at least ask the Lord to develop a spirit in your heart where you love the people of God. You love the fellowship. You love the, the community. Um, one of the hallmarks of the early church, the church in the book of Acts, what, what do we see constantly happening in the book of Acts, uh, especially in Acts chapter 2? Before the Holy Ghost comes, they were all together in one place. And they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter preaches. Peter uh, sees 3,000 people added. And then even with those 3,000 people added, it says this, they devoted themselves to the apostle teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of the bread and to the person. Again, they devote, the Holy Spirit devoted them, made, caused them to devote themselves to one another. This says, it says they had all things in common. They were selling their possessions they were distributing the, the, the proceeds to all as they had need. They were attending temple day by day, breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. In other words, what you have here is you have a community that was radically committed to each other. That is the kingdom of God. And it is a now and not yet reality. It is a now and not yet reality. Yes, the church can be very frustrating, but I guarantee you that if you get into a good gospel preaching church, it will be the best place on earth for you up until heaven. When heaven comes, your church will look like hell, <laughs> but because you'll be in the presence of God's people without sin, without any shame, without any fear, without any guilt, without anybody taking advantage of anybody else. But the church is a preview, just like the Sol Solomon's temple and just like the Feast of Tabernacles was a preview of coming attractions of God's cosmic calendar. So too, the church today is a preview of coming attractions 
to what we will have in heaven. Life with one another, in fellowship with each other, devoted to each other in the presence of God. Then, as we dwell in this temporary, not yet um, temple, we are given the stipulations for our prayers. Where should our heart go to in prayer? Well, those seven petitions of Solomon are a great outline for your prayers and my prayers, and I would suggest the prayers of every church. Praying for unity in community, praying for repentance from sin, praying for purity and righteous living, praying for deliverance for, um, and personal holiness, uh, praying for the stranger, the foreigner to come home, praying for victory in our lives over the enemy. Again, not physical, spiritual enemies. And then praying for national revival. This is a beautiful outline. As Solomon dedicates the temple to God, his glory fills the temple. The Lord is present in the temple. Those poles are visible from the inside of the temple to remind God's people, look, I got you here. It was my grace. The cross got us to where we are. Let's be people that are kingdom-oriented. Let's be people who are praying the priorities of God. And if it's mapped out in Scripture, it should be mapped on our hearts. It should cause us to think about, am I praying for these things? Are these a priority in my life? A unity, repentance, purity, deliverance for lost people. Like, Let me just ask you a quick question. It's Christmas season. This would be a great time for you to think about inviting your neighbor to church because they might be more open to come on Christmas Eve than any other time of the year. This would be a great time to pray for your neighbor on your left and on your right, your front and your back, wherever they are. Pray for them to come to Christ. Pray for that neighbor to come to Christ. Pray for the stranger to come home. Some of you need to pray for victory in the spiritual realm because you are, you're just demonically oppressed, not possessed, but oppressed. Some of us, actually all of us need to pray for national revival. What is going to change America? Not voting, not legislators, not, 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 not better sinners. No, national revival. You can go back and trace the revivals of history in this country. The second great awakening that probably was the impetus behind the Emancipation Proclamation and the end of slavery. The first great awakening was, for, was probably the spiritual impetus behind America declaring freedom from England itself in the first place. All of it rooted back into the revival of the um, reformers in the 15th and 16th century, bringing people back to the text, to the biblical word of God, and not simply to the traditions of the church uh, and the hierarchy of the uh, Roman Catholic Church. So all of these things, all of these things happened in history. These moments happened because people prayed and people sought revival. We need revival. We need to pray for God's kingdom to come more now than ever before. Let me leave it on that final idea. Support the channel, guys. That was the episode. If you would, cash app Tim Hatch Live or timhatchlive.com. Uh, any amount uh, given gets you the free digital chapter of my new book, Ending Emptiness, coming out. A monthly donator that is a dependable, we call you. It gets the free copy, hard copy of the book uh, delivered to you. Just let us know, by the way, if you are a monthly supporter, we will check it and we will then make sure that you are on the list to get the copy of the book when it comes out. Quick uh, program note, 10 questions with Tim is usually the first Thursday of the month. Well, I realized today that tomorrow is the first Thursday and it's not going to be tomorrow. So uh, it will be next Thursday. In this case, the second Thursday. So let me just make a little on-screen adjustment here. There we go. Yeah, second. <laughs> second Thursday of the month. So join us a week from tomorrow. There is no deep end. There is no deep dive next week, but there will be 10 questions with Tim. One of the ways that you can also support us 
is by liking this video, support, uh, subscribing to the channel, or sharing the video. Guys, it's been an absolute pleasure to be with you. I pray God's grace be upon you. Let's pray for a national revival. Amen. Take care. Have a good night.